You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Danny Fingeroth, and you are listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is Venom, Episode 1, Lethal Protector. And now, this is unusual because it's not an epic collection. We are going to deviate a little bit, um, and I'll explain why in a second. But first, I want to introduce my co-host for this episode. This is Adam Chapman. Hello, Curtis. I'm glad to be on a a Spider-Man adjacent podcast. Very cool. Yeah, so for those of you... Um, who are here to uh, get the the scoop on the origins of Venom, you actually need to listen to our other episode, Amazing Spider-Man, episode, what is it, 18? I think so. I think that's what it is, yeah. It's called Venom. So go search my podcast archives for that episode to get the origin of Venom. And then you probably, before listening to this one, you'll probably also want to listen to the episode that is not recorded yet because the epic collection isn't released yet that includes amazing (laughs) spider-man number 375 because we'll be referencing that issue probably a few times in this in this episode Um, okay so i'm deviating from normal i'm not doing the epic collections because i just need to kind of bang out a quick episode for those of you who know already i have a a reprint series with with the Library of American Comics and IDW, we're reprinting all of the For Better or For Worse comic strip. And I'm one of the main editors in that and doing a lot of the color restoration. So it's this this January is actually cram-packed full of me trying to get all of my work finished before my deadlines are up. So I don't have time to read 20 issues and then record a two-hour episode and then edit that two-hour ep- episode. That's just a lot of time. So we're going to just do some short episodes for a little while. So the next couple of weeks, we will be tackling um, a few of the Venom miniseries that came out in the 90s. Venom had an ongoing series, but it was built up of little miniseries. It's an interesting way to do it. Yeah. So actually, I have Danny Fingeroth. I interviewed him a little while ago, and he. I'm going to play a clip here of him talking about why he decided to do the Venom miniseries this way. You know, that's sort of the nature of the comic book business or any entertainment business. Something's popular. You try to maximize, you know, that popularity. The tricky thing about Venom was that he was a villain. Um, but not in his, you know, well, no villain is, is a villain in their own eyes. But, you know, so so we knew he'd do a series. And somewhere in there, again, I, you know, it was decided it would be instead of being an ongoing series it would be a series of mini series honestly because in 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 those days and maybe still today you know a new number 1 was always sold uh sold well and sold extra cuz people uh you know wanted to collect them and um invest in them or whatever you know it was, it was something so if you'd have a new number 1 every uh, 4 or 6 months and then it would also be a, a good way to have rotating creators and do a different story arc and get different people's takes on venom did you collect these when you were a kid, Adam? 
No, actually. Um, so I kind of came to Spider-Man as a regular reader much later um, than this specific period. I mean, I actually, now that I think about it, I guess I read some Spider-Man issues this summer that this series would have come out. I was looking at the publication dates for this. It's interesting that I believe the first issue of it technically came out before, or at least the cover date is prior to Amazing Spider-Man 375, which this kind of comes out of. Oh, okay. Which is weird, because I was, I, was, I was curious what how it kind of fit, because you had uh, 374 and 375, then you had Lethal Protector happen, and then before Lethal Protector was even over, Venom was back in the Spider-Man book for Maximum Carnage. Oh, wow, okay, so they were running concurrently. Which is kind of crazy and interesting that like that's how people would have been experiencing this all at the same time, which is kind of crazy. Well, we all know that it was Venom Overload in the 90s. <laughs> so that's, it, it was. <laughs> yep, it's not a big surprise there. Okay, so what do we need to know before jumping into this trade paperback? Uh, well, we need to obviously know who Venom is, although this kind of will tell you and, and go a little bit deeper into the, who Eddie Brock really is. But really, Eddie Brock was a disgraced journalist who'd bonded with the former uh, alien symbiote that Spider-Man used to use. They had vengeance for Spider-Man, so they became Venom. Uh, multiple times they tried to kill him. Uh, just prior to this miniseries, they made a deal with Spider-Man that uh, basically that you know he would they wouldn't try to kill each other, uh, and they had kind of an uneasy truce, which... A lot of people and writers kind of felt that it didn't really fit Spider-Man at all, but they needed a way to have Venom still be operating so they could give him his own series, but at the same time not have Spider-Man just turn the other way. Like, it was kind of a weird detente, um, which the books kind of at, at various points did make mention of kind of being weird. And even when Ben Riley first came into the book as part of the Clone Saga, that was kind of the writer saying that, you know, the real Spider-Man would never have let this go on. But that's really what you need to know going in is that, you know, they're kind of staying out of each other's way, but Spider-Man is not sure how he feels about that. And that will directly lead into what he does here. I'll just play one more clip before we get started. <laughs> you know, Venom was problematic because he was a a villain who um, killed people. Right. You know, he was the dark side of the superhero. He was the dark side of Spider-Man. He was, you know, the return of the living suit, which had been popular, and that just that design, that black and white costume that had been designed by Mike Zick, you know, was uh, for, for Secret Wars. You know, all, all these kind of, it's like a perfect storm of all these things that people like, and yet the guy is a murderer, so how do we... <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, I mean, and I think in the past they'd done stuff like super villain team up, um, and I don't know if those, I don't know if anything featuring villains. I'm sure somebody can tell me how I'm wrong, but in general, I don't remember anything starring a villain unless you count the Submariner, who's the whole of the story. You know, um, right. had been had been uh, particularly successful. So, um, you know, it was the grim and gritty era. The Punisher and characters like that were popular too. And, um, you know, all this later led to Maximum Carnage, and I know you want to talk about it. So anyway, let me, you know, an idea that I think that I came up with, that I'm not saying it was particularly brilliant, because it never really, I just, uh, but but we sort of made it work, I think, for the, you know, for the ongoing Venom series of miniseries, was, okay, if Spider-Man knew, Spider-Man's kind of a reactive character, as many superheroes are, you know, I mean, yeah. uh, even even though he goes out patrolling, you know, Spider-Man doesn't have an agenda to change the world. He has an agenda to, you know, stop villains and criminals and uh, and take pictures himself uh, and sell them to the Bugle and make money. Anyway, in the New York area, he'd spend every waking moment hunting down Venom. 
if he think if if he if Eddie I think pledges to him to be more circumspect in how he operates and he ends up on the west coast you know I sort of you know I and we sort of gritted our teeth and went okay I guess Spider-Man is more reactive and he is your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man so uh, you know if he was distracted by whatever three other villains he was fighting on a given month you know maybe it's credible that he wouldn't you know take a plane out to San Francisco and spend every waking moment hunting down venom but that you know that was that was a way we kind of threaded that needle and mm-hmm. um so we moved venom to the west coast and then there weren't i don't know if there were many or any you know uh ongoing hero villains villains superpowered people in san francisco so it gave us a interesting milieu to set it against um but that, that was that was how that came about so venom's an interesting story based on that clip we just heard he follows suit with characters like the Punisher and like Deadpool, who started out as villains, but then once they got popular enough and went into having their own series, they kind of turned into these anti-hero kind of characters. Yeah, it's interesting, though, because like those characters, like the Punisher was manipulated into wanting to kill Spider-Man in, the, in his first appearance, and it wasn't, and he was still about killing bad guys and then thought Spider-Man was a bad guy. So it was easier to make him an anti-hero because i mean he wasn't a villain to begin with he was an antagonist for spider-man but it's hard to say he was an outright villain he was just someone manipulated into putting spider-man in his crosshairs someone like deadpool again yeah an antagonist as well but not specifically a villain i guess you could say the same for venom as well the only thing he had going for him was that he had a hatred for spider-man but not for the rest of mankind and that's what we're exploring here I mean, he does kill someone pretty early on. That's true. And then he says, like, oh, I shouldn't be taking the lives of innocents. But it kind of, like, feels like a very odd moment when that first happens. And obviously that is called back in this series. Right. Well, why don't we go into the first issue here? Do you want to give us a little recap? Yeah, so I mean, well, in terms of a historical context, this would have been really exciting because obviously Venom's a big hit. Carnage has recently come out a year earlier, was a big hit too. The, the Carnage is about to headline his own 14-part miniseries, uh, sorry, 14-part storyline. So, you know, symbiote fever is taking over. <laughs> yeah. um, but not only that, I mean, so Mark Bagley has been around on the books for about, what, two years now? And people are really loving what he's doing with Spider-Man. He's kind of starting to become that you know, quintessential 90s Spider-Man artist. When people think of he really is, Mark Bagley becomes that guy. So this would have been a really exciting book because not only does Venom get his own book, but at least at the beginning, you have Mark Bagley doing the art. And that would have been a giant coup that this guy is somehow being able to do both the regular Amazing Spider-Man book and Venom. And it would definitely give a huge selling point for people to want to pick this up. Yep, it was a selling point for me. I picked it up because Bagley was on it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Not only that, and I, I do like that in the uh, the most recent collection of it, um, they do have I guess pages from the original uh, special gold edition of this uh, of this issue. Right. And the fact that uh, they said, well, there are over a million copies of the regular premier edition in print, which is crazy. Uh, this run is limited to eleven thousand and features bonus pinups that the regular edition doesn't have. And so again, this is in that era of. You know, people want collector's items, and this is, you know, giving them a collector item that, you know, a lot of people aren't going to have. And the cover is this gold, this uh, red foil cover. 
It's too bad that the trade paperbacks can't reproduce it because it actually looked really cool with the with the webs kind of shining in the background behind Venom. Absolutely, yeah. I recently looked online to see, because I have a copy of this. It's not in very good condition because I read it many, many times as a kid. Um, but I have mm-hmm. that copy of Venom Lethal Protector number one, and it's going for like 50 bucks on eBay. So Really? Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't well, I believe it. I mo- guess movie fever. Oh, yeah. I guess that's you're probably right. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. People do like Venom right now. Yeah. So in this particular issue, so basically when you get into it, suddenly you're in San Francisco, um, you know, some creep's trying to do something, Venom's there, and he, he's protecting innocence and basically kind of being a superhero, but definitely much more violent than Peter Parker would ever be. Uh, he's hurting people. It's interesting to see how... Bagley's getting like more comfortable with how he, his rendition of Venom looks like. Yeah. I will say his Venom feels less like a, a giant physical threat as compared to the Larson and McFarlane versions. As he definitely, even though he's he's still supposed to be kind of this big bodybuilder, he, uh, everyone that Mark Bagley does is still a little bit more uh, nimble looking. They don't look as grotesquely huge and muscled. Right. So he's still big. He's still bigger than Spider-Man, but not to an obscene degree. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And we have some great fashion. Uh, like when Eddie Brock first kind of hits the scene after Venom turns into street clothes and he's wearing, you know, his, his I guess, jeans and his uh, tank top. with I don't know. What does HTND mean? I don't know. Yeah, that must be an in-joke of some sort, but I don't know. Speaking of in-jokes, and I, I, I guess with the timing, I think this makes sense. When um, so I, uh, Eddie Brock goes to a uh, motel to check in and these, these cops see him because apparently he's wanted everywhere. Uh, not just in New York, which I was actually surprised about. Um, so they see, oh, like that's Ed Brock. Not just Eddie Brock, it's Edward Brock. They're going to go bust this guy. And as they go into the hotel, you see a sign for no pets, parties, loud music, cooking, spitting, smoking, tie-dyes, or Youngbloods. And I was like, is that a reference to Youngblood, the comic? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yeah. That would have come out just around this time, right? Or uh... Right? Like, I yeah. think so. Mm-hmm. Like, it's... Unless unless Youngbloods is referring to something else, which is possible, but I just thought that's got to be an image dig, right? Probably. Yeah, because they would have um, just had the mass exodus from Marvel Comics just recently. Maybe there's a little <laughs> bit of bad blood or something. That's funny. And Venom escapes the uh, you know these cops. And, it, and again, this is where they start trying to kind of dull the edges off him a little, where he's like, we don't want to do this. We know you're just doing your jobs. And fine jobs they are. This hurts us almost as much as it does you. <laughs> so they're really laying it on thick. Yeah. But, you know, he, that's what's going on. And so someone takes a picture, and then Peter Parker sees it in the newspaper, and he's like, you know, it's funny where he's like, after all, in a way, I'm responsible for Venom's existence. No, not in a way. You most definitely are. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, it is indirect. I mean, he he just got rid of the suit. He didn't realize the suit was going to find a different host. He did try to kill it, though. Yeah. Like, he did try to hurt it enough that it got off of him, and then it did, and and he wasn't really sad about it. Yeah, but he, he thought that was the end of his story. He, I, he didn't, like, give it to Eddie. So No, it's, I know. But, yeah. like, it, it just it felt funny that he's, like, very much trying to make it like it's an indirect, which, I mean, it is, but... For someone like Peter, it's weird to hear him actually excuse himself from a responsibility. When have you heard mm. of Peter Parker ever doing that? Well, yeah, and that's the whole reason why he's also in San Francisco now is because he feels the guilt of, you know, letting Venom wander free. So he's just checking up on him. Some of my favorite art actually in this series is on the flashback page, um, which is kind of colored, kind of a duller um, kind of colorless look where you, you know it's a flashback and you see you know Eddie 
um, finding out that, you know, he's been duped and then him first becoming Venom and then fighting against Spider-Man. Like, there's just something about those pages. The uh, the black-on-black Spider-Man and Black Costume versus Venom, the way that Bagley does his rendition of a McFarlane pose is really cool, and I really like that art on that page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good note. And we have, um, this is where Eddie Brock also has developed his mullet, which is unfortunate. <laughs> I was going to mention, you forgot to say that when you're talking about fashion. <laughs> yeah, it's awful. Like, it's it's one of the things, I, I, I look at this issue and I just kind of cringe. But this issue sets up a lot because you have Eddie Brock see some homeless people being hassled and he tries to go protect them. Um, and then Spider-Man's already there, so like they end up having a fight against each other. And then, you know, then these, these these goons throw guns and they start shooting at them. And Venom just wants to protect the bystanders. And then he just kind of disappears. So here we, we, we meet um, this general and we find out that we don't really know exactly what it is yet. But he has this picture of his son and he wants vengeance on Venom. And, and when we do get the reveal, it actually is a nice way of calling back Venom's history in a, a way that I thought Michelini was really uh, figuring out how to put pieces together really well. Um, something that was just kind of a throwaway very early on in Venom's history actually ends up being a very important plot point here. We do have, again, some weird, silly stuff with Eddie Brock and these homeless people, and then they get attacked by these giant mechs, and Venom has to kind of protect them, and he gets really hurt, and then they fall through this ground into some other place, and they look around, and they say, oh, my God, we've fallen through time. (laughs) I love that. I'm like, come on, really? Like, that's your first inclination? Like, Oh, it's not just that we felt like obviously it's a weird situation. They suddenly find themselves with like a whole city around them underground. Right. But like, the idea that we've fallen through time is so stupid. Yeah, well, it was just to give a good cliffhanger. But uh, so there's there's two main stories that are going on here. One is the homeless people that are being hassled by these whatever the the guys with the guns and these diggers. Yep. And then there's the story with um, the the guy who's after Venom because of the, the because Venom killed his son. So it's interesting that in, this is a six issue miniseries, but we have two main plots that don't really intersect. Um, they kind of no. get in each other's way, but they don't they they don't relate to each other at all. And I thought that was an interesting move for Michelini to do for this miniseries. Well, not only that, that's only in this first issue because then we get another plot line added later. Right. Yeah. Okay. And we'll we'll get get to that one in a little bit. Uh, and anyone who's watched the movie will recognize some characters, so or at least the character names. Okay. So this next issue is called War and Pieces, and I think <laughs> that's funny. The play on just War and Peace, of course, the book, which takes place in the same time period that they f- believe that they've fallen through time too. <laughs> <laughs> so. We quickly find out that, no, they have not actually fallen through time. They are now in an underground city. And uh, the the great um, earthquake in 1903, the great San Francisco earthquake, uh, a portion of the city actually fell, like it sunk, and then the city just kind of paved over top of it and built a new city over top of it. Sounds ridiculous, but... That has actually happened. I don't know if it happened in, in in California, if that's a real thing, but I know that there is an underground city underneath downtown Seattle, and you can get tours to go see it and stuff like that. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So stuff like that actually does kind of happen here and there. So it's not far-fetched. However, the all of the homeless community in San Francisco seems to have found this underground city and has made it their home, and they have an entire civilization underground, including like a council with with voting and a jury and like 
um, <laughs> electricity and like there's everything is down there. So it's quite remarkable. Eddie's wanted by like he's on America's most wanted. So he can't even like get a place to stay above ground. So he's trying to get sanctuary underground. So yeah. um, in order to get on the good side of these people, he goes after this guy named Roland Treese, who is the guy that's, that seems to be uh, terrorizing these homeless people. And, and no one really knows why. Mm-hmm. Also in this issue, uh, Spider-Man tries to find out a little bit more about Eddie's history and then Venom meets up with at the very end of this issue the guy the the uh, the the general whose son was killed meets up with Venom with a team of mercenaries uh, led by this guy named the Guardsman and this is the jury the first appearance of the jury. The jury was big in the nineties. Yeah, yeah, they make a lot of appearances, especially they appear in more of the Venom miniseries and uh, through in the Spider-Man comics as well. I mean, it's interesting to see them here because they become much more individualized later and they have like more armor and cool stuff. But here it's just like the one guardsman and everyone else and, you know, fairly standard gear. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's cool. And like there's there's actually a lot going here. Like you have Spider-Man finding uh, Carl Brock, Eddie Brock's dad and like going to confront him. And like that's a, a big move. Um, you have Eddie Brock being shunned by the society he just protected. And they're actually like saying like you have to go. And even this, I have to give credit to Bagley for really, you know, putting a lot of dismay on Brock's face. Like he thought maybe he'd find a place he could stay, and he protected them, and that they still want him to go. And then there's a reverend here, and who, honest to God, if they hadn't said over and over again that he was a reverend, um, he <laughs> looks like a cross between Baron Strucker, yeah, and um, and uh, Fortunato, who is uh, a mob boss in the Spider-Man books in the late '90s, because he kind of <laughs> looks like a combination of the both. But instead, he's just just your typical preacher with a uh, you know a real mat on for people and and uh, one eye covered by a, a patch. Yeah, you know he's um, he's mad at the world because he has an eye patch. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's fair. Yep. You know, if I had an eye patch, I'd be mad at the world too. But this is a good storytelling device because we. I have to be convinced that Venom is a good guy now as well. So in order mm-hmm. for us to be convinced, he's kicked out of this community. They're not going to let him live there until they have proof that Eddie is actually, you know, a good guy. So that's going to be the purpose of this six-issue miniseries right here. And by the end of it, we will have an answer. Absolutely. No, it's... This, I mean, up until this point, the there's a lot of plot, but it's good plot and... We're trying to get more characterization and understanding the main character in a way that's not just him saying, I want to eat Spider-Man's brains. Um, so this is the most like thought and real developments that it's really gone into the character up until this point. Yeah. Because up until now, he's really just been a foil for Spider-Man and not much else. Um, and this is where we're finally getting a little bit more. And to be fair, we got a little bit more of that in Amazing Spider-Man 374 and 375 as well, because they knew they were about to launch into a, a series on his own. So they had to start breaking Venom away from the old... Um, stereotype well which is it's weird to say old because the character had only been around like you know not that long like he appeared in 300 so this is 75 so that's what like what six years maybe like it's not hasn't been around a long time but it's also you know there's already a, a formula for what a venom story is and they're trying to figure out a way to break away from that right yeah very true so we have issue three which is uh let's see a verdict of violence uh, so, which is obviously because it's the jury, so you have to have a 
a play on that. And this is where we find out about who this this general, his son, was, and the idea that he came out of the academy and became a guard at the, at, uh, the vault. And so he was killed in Amazing Spider-Man 315, um, which, again, is a nice callback that Michelin is able to do to his own work. Uh, and we have the first, you know, full-out battle with the uh, the jury. We also have more going on with Trees International and their their plan against uh, getting rid of these homeless people. You have Spider-Man spending a lot of time uh, trying to find more about uh, Eddie Brock's past. He tries to get information from Carl, and then uh, the, the housekeeper for Carl g- gives him the total lowdown. And um, <laughs> yep. where at the same time we see Venom just taking on the jury out the Golden Gate Bridge. It's a, a, a very extended fight sequence, but it's pretty good. Um, you get to see a gamut of Venom's different powers. He's able to disappear in the melee using his camouflage abilities. Again, we spend a lot of time learning about Eddie Brock's uh, past with uh, Spider-Man. And then, um, you know, Venom is attacked again and again and again by the jury. Like, he just could not catch a break. And finally, when he does escape, he gets hired by Roland Treese uh, to work for security, but he doesn't trust Roland Treese, and neither does Treese trust him. And then they're able to encase him in a wall of fire and and uh, take him hostage. Yeah, so it sounds like there's a lot in this issue, but the, all of the action really happens in the last couple of pages, all the important stuff. It Most of this issue is really just a cat and mouse chase between the jury and Venom. For sure. And then there's also the extended uh, kind of backstory and history of Eddie Brock that Spider-Man's being told. So, um, Which I absolutely hated. <laughs> why is that? Um, I just found it was so trite. I, I don't know if you've read Venom Dark Origin, um, no. which is a more recent miniseries from a couple of maybe seven or eight years ago. Um, that's a really good retelling of, of Venom's origin. It's very dark and twisted, um, but it kind of makes sense for who the character is, whereas this is really trying to create a sob story of, you know, like this. Eddie was really smart, but it was never good enough for his dad. Eddie was, you know, really, really strong and athletic, and that was never good for his dad. And it just it makes everything tinged on this, these daddy issues. And I felt it was a weak. I just thought it was a weak uh, development for the character. Like I already had enough of what I needed from Eddie. The idea that you know he was the way he was partially because of this, that his career blew up, and then he found himself just absolutely distraught and didn't know what to do, and gave in to vengeance and gave in to venom. With this sad story about his, him and his dad, like again, it doesn't feel like it really adds. It just kind of makes it more trite and like anyone could have written this. Like it just feels really lazy. What it does do, and Spider-Man says it himself, is uh, he says, I kind of almost feel sorry for the guy. And I think that's that's exactly the purpose. It's like we're supposed to know that his motivations are um, like the, the way the way he's turned out are because is because of his father. He's not inherently a bad guy. In fact, and we knew this from before. He's actually very intelligent when you when you read about like he was a world class reporter. And he he was a smart guy and and did well in his career, and that's shown here. What I also think this does is that shows that um, not only does Eddie have daddy issues, but we know that the symbiote also has daddy issues. It can it considers Spider Man his father. Mm. So when you get both of them together, and they both have issues with their father, and 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 it's all going to be taken out on Spider Man. Yeah. I still don't like it. <laughs> sure. And I agree. It's like cliche after cliche. Mom dies in childbirth. Single dad buries himself in work. Doesn't have time for a son. Like that story has been told so many times. It It is very much a, a cliche. I just felt like for me, it didn't add enough 
to who the character was. And like, I understand what you're saying. Like you're trying to find a way to create some sort of sympathy so that we can root for this guy. But I just feel like there, there could have been another way. It's interesting. So again, if you ever do read Venom Dark Origin, it's uh, much more twisted, yeah. um, but yeah. it, it feels more accurate to that character. Like it kind of shows that there was always kind of something wrong with Eddie and he was always a little off. Um, and then when he became bonded with the symbiote, it just kind of unleashed what was already there. And I think that for me is a more acceptable, like it just kind of makes more sense for that, who that character is, as opposed to, well, this is just one guy who had a bad day. <laughs> so after the housekeeper finishes her backstory, Spider-Man says, thanks, Mrs. Dempsey, you've been a big help. And then he leaves and says, I wish I could believe that, but I don't know if anything she told me will actually help me find Venom. And I thought, yeah, this was a complete waste of time. <laughs> Yeah, but again, as you said, it was it was for the reader's benefit. Yep, exactly. So and for Spider-Man to try and create sympathy because he's a, a giant bleeding heart sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's go on to issue number... Th- uh, what are we now, four? Yeah, so this is where the series goes downhill. <laughs> well, yeah, there are there are a few weird things here. The first one is that we, we switch artists. We have Ron Lim, and I like Ron Lim, but he doesn't hold a candle to Mark Bakley. Uh, not in, no. not when you put them back to back here. So that's unfortunate. We have yeah. This is this is just so strange. Okay, the Life Foundation has captured Venom and has extracted a little portion of him of his costume or of their costume to create a new symbiote. And the cover of this one says, "Inside you and Venom and Spider-Man will confront the first female symbiote." And I think, I know this is just semantics, but the the symbiote isn't female. The symbiote is asexual, I think. It's just yeah. covering a female person. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's basically all that you need to know for this issue, I think. Yeah, it's not very good. I mean, it, it's okay. It just, it goes on a long time. There's a bunch of questionable things. The overall concept of the idea that they've, you know, been able to take some of the spawn because they have found out about carnage and trying to, you know, replicate the process and bond it to other agents for this, you know, elite security force. It's not a bad idea. Um, it just kind of goes on a long time and does, maybe doesn't have the clearest sense of what it wants to be. You also yeah. have the idea that, you know, Venom is being, you know, held in the sonic bubble and can't really escape. Although, and this is absolutely hilarious to me, when Venom is finally, finally realizes, wait a minute, if I just have the costume not go through the sonic barrier and just my arm, I can maybe grab someone. So when he does, uh, someone says, uh, that cage should hold a normal human. You idiot. Brock has Olympic-level strength. <laughs> what? When did that happen? Like, I know that he's a bodybuilder, but, like, that doesn't make you Olympic-level strength. Yeah, well, he did it all for his dad, you know. <laughs> that's true <laughs> those daddy issues really make you push a lot harder there are also some really un- unnecessary cheesecake here where spider-man calls home and mary jane's you know in her workout outfit a basically a bathing suit bottom yeah. and like a, a skimpy little top i'm like okay sure but that was I like every issue there. of spider-man at this time through the todd mcfarlane and eric larson run like that's she's always doing that i mean i guess i should be thankful that she's not smoking at the same time because that happened a lot in this period too (laughs) um but like it just it just felt like so extraneous didn't need to be there at all and like mj being in the book already felt weird enough and then putting her absolutely unnecessarily in this in this skimpy gear was just so unnecessary so let's talk about this new symbiote for a little bit. I feel like sure. they're trying to recreate the magic that happened with Carnage. Absolutely. 
But that was lightning in a bottle. Um, the problem here is that Cletus Cassidy had all sorts of character and personality over the top, and this person has no personality whatsoever. No, she barely talks when she's fighting, right? She doesn't talk at all. And they don't give her a name. She's not named at all. In fact, I looked it up. Didn't she scream? She screamed, but she wasn't given a name until 2007 in Civil War Battle Damage Report Number 1. What? That can't be right. I feel like I knew her name a long time ago. I, I, that's what I found online. So if you can correct me, then that's that's fine. But um, wow, yeah, I don't. And, and she even has other appearances later on in the Venom series, and they go. All of these characters go unnamed. That's crazy. Uh, one more thing before we move on. I felt like this issue was more of a Spider-Man issue than a Venom issue. It was written mostly following Spider-Man's, you know, trying to track down Venom. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I mean, Venom spends all of his time inside this bubble, so that's probably why it's not a Venom focus. But it really felt like yeah. this was an issue of Spider-Man rather than an issue of Venom. True. One thing I just saw about Scream, and uh, so I guess it, it both validates what you said, but also I guess technically her name was given in an action figure series in 1996. Oh, okay, I see. But then it, she was not apparently according. Uh, this is Wikipedia, which could be 75% wrong. But apparently uh, her name was christened by the toy line. However, she was not officially called that by Marvel until 2007 in the Civil War Battle Damage Report book. So okay. you're, not ru- you're not wrong, but I guess that's probably where I saw it originally. That makes but, sense then, I guess. Yeah. That's so weird. That is weird. Like how they would let that happen. But uh, okay, whatever. Yeah, it, it's not the most memorable of issues. It really suffers from the transition from Mark Bagley to Ron Lim. No offense to Ron Lim. He's a great artist, but in the right context, maybe he was rushed here. Like, it just felt very sloppy at times. The action yeah. wasn't the most – it just wasn't wasn't the most pleasant read. No. Um, the colors were really off a lot. Like, the colors were terrible. Like, uh, there's some of the shots of Spider-Man when he's, like, fighting these these random agents. Like, you could just tell that when on, when on the Mark Bagley one, he had so much more intricate line work. And then when you have the colors on top, like, Spider-Man looked much better as a character. Whereas here, it just looks lumpy. Like, I don't know if it's a lack of definition by Lim or by whoever's doing the inks. Or if it's also just the colors just not being up to par. Like, the entire artistic effort seems... Uh, just nowhere near as well put together as the previous issues. Yeah, I agree. I think it definitely looks rushed. Now, there are two inkers on this. Sam Della Rosa, who is Bagley's regular inker at this time, and Al Milgram, whom I personally don't think is the greatest inker. Uh, and that could be part of it. So, yeah, who knows? <laughs> but let's go on to the next issue. All right, issue five, which, again, has a great Bagley cover, but do not get uh, seduced. It's not in the interior. <laughs> Yep. So this is okay. So now we just have Sam Delarosa and finishes. Oh yeah, Ron Lim's only doing breakdowns. Yeah. Which so this becomes even worse. Yeah. Like that first page, like you have Eddie Brock kind of lying, like supposed to be dead. It's just there's it, it's it's awful. Like it's so weird. It's just there's no. I, I really take issue with the colors. Like it just looks awkward and not well put together. And again, the colors remain an issue throughout. Throughout and thereby, I guess Marie Javins here. And it's more frustrating because when you have all the different symbiotes, the colors just are not popping in the way that they should. Like you have all these different symbiotes. They could all have different color schemes and they do, but yet they don't, they somehow lack the ability to jump off the page. Whereas Carnage jumped off the page with his red. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the benefit of being a just bright red, especially with four color offset printing. I guess. The red really yeah. stands out all the time. 
and you're not going to get the same sort of popping from secondary colors. No, but like there's there's page in here. Like I guess we when we see the first uh, like all the symbiotes rushing forward and Spider-Man saying f- f- five venoms. Uh, like two pages later, the colors are so washed out. Like you almost don't even know what you're looking at. Now I wonder if that is part of this uh, this this reproduction in the collection. I'd have to go back so? to my original issues because I think that um, some of, I think this reproduction just doesn't look great in a lot of cases okay. here. So I, I'm not sure though. Not positive. So I mean, really, the entire issue is you have the Life Foundation has created these five other sim, uh, you know symbiotes. They've attached to people. They're having them fight Spider-Man. Um, Spider-Man and Eddie Brock end up having to fight together. They are armed with sonic blasters together, and they're trying to do what they can and trying to also find the Venom symbiote so they can bond it back with uh, with Eddie so that they can take on the symbiote and eventually, well, Venom wants to kill them. Spider-Man doesn't, and uh, it doesn't go so well for the symbiote. So don't worry, it's not not the last we'll see of them. Uh, because you can't keep a good symbiote down. <laughs> and then um, this whole facility kind of blows up from the Life Foundation. Venom is missing, and Spider-Man just doesn't really know what to do from here. <laughs> okay, so these these five symbiotes, let's uh, name them here. The purple one is called Agony. The orange one is called Phage. The gray one is called Riot. And the green one is called Lasher. And they were all named for the first time in a comic in Carnage USA number 2 in 2012. <laughs> oh, God. But Lasher was named in the Toy Biz uh, action figures. Okay. And I think, oh, maybe Riot wasn't either. Like, I mean, to be honest, they, as you said before with Scream, no personality whatsoever. So it None. doesn't matter. Yeah, they're all interchangeable. Um, they do a little bit to to use their powers uh, in, a, in a few different ways. Like, um, you know, one of them is more bulky, so he uses his strength more. One of them uses the... the whatever the the tendrils more um mm-hmm. and another one uses uh, uses creates razors and shapes out of his his hands so they do try to differentiate them a little bit but they're all just basically carnage clones they're not even venom clones and uh yeah i wasn't sad to see them go it's like yeah it was really really awesome when there was carnage so whose bright idea is it like you know what they liked one carnage so let's give them five carnages and they'll like that even better no, yeah. it didn't work out. Sorry, Michelin. Now, issue six, thankfully, Ron Lim is now doing full pencils, not just breakdowns. So that's nice. And it does show. It, it absolutely does show, absolutely. Shows. Um, okay, so one more thing about issue five is that I still think that this is it was written from Spider-Man's point of view almost the entire issue. Hmm. And the main thing that I noticed in this one is that we hear Spider-Man's thoughts. Yes. We don't hear any of Venom's thoughts. So we are instantly inside Spider-Man's head. We are seeing everything from Spider-Man's perspective. So this is a Spider-Man issue. These last three issues are all Spider-Man issues, not Venom issues. I yeah, think, I think weird, that's a problem. It's a weird choice. Yeah. It is a problem, absolutely. Because how, how are you supposed to bond with this character if you don't know what's in his head? Now, yeah. that being said, in more modern comics, that's not as big of a surprise. Right. We see that more often. But at the time, especially uh, in, you know, in, in this period, in the 80s, 90s, you were still used to having internal narration. Yep. And uh, that's how you understood the character. And again, that has gone away in recent years. And now you just don't see it anymore, especially with like, yeah. an anti-hero. Sometimes they do it on purpose. But at this time, it just seems weird. The internal narration is used nowadays in form of the, the narrator. They don't usually have an omniscient narrator anymore. It's that's internal true. monologue. But they don't use thought bubbles like the no. traditional way for sure. 
Okay, last issue. Frisco Kill. This one is the finale. Venom confronts Trees and learns about the plan to blow up the park because apparently there is a stash of hidden gold under the park that the homeless <laughs> people don't know about, and he wants all the gold to himself. So, yeah. sets up these bombs. Venom finds out about it, and this is where we find Venom's moment to shine because there is a fire that that starts up and it's surrounding a trailer that has the detonation code in it and Trees is in there about to set off the bombs so Venom has to go through the fire which is a big deal because if you are familiar with Venom you know that his costume is allergic to fire <laughs> so <laughs> so he pushes the costume through and when the costume feels pain Eddie feels pain and has to uh, has to, to stop the stop trees from blowing up the thing that way so he he proves himself and the homeless people are lurking in the shadows and see him and welcome him into their uh, community in the in the end yeah so when this ends it, it made me realize that like we had all these different plot lines but like each one just kind of got dropped like as we went along like the jury plot line kind of got dropped because one of them was shot by the uh the life foundation and then he was spirited away to the life foundation and then he had to deal with that and then he escaped and but like we haven't seen the jury again since and then we finally got him going back to protect the homeless people and having to push himself into you know into harm's way and like it, it ends that part of the story but it just feels like kind of a haphazard six issues that had these plot lines just kind of running in and then running out and they weren't part of a kind of a larger overall narrative it was just kind of like moving him from a to b to b to c to c to d yeah setting up a new status quo yeah but it's interesting too because again by the time this is over, he's already back in New York for Maximum Carnage anyway. <laughs> right. Oh, and I, I, uh, I'll have to reread Maximum Carnage with this book in context to see if he makes mention to his time in San Francisco or anything like that. Because uh, to see see if his attitude's any different, I don't remember. I know he's on the good side in that book in that story. It's been a long time since I've read Maximum Carnage. Like it looks like, like from Amazing Spider-Man's perspective, you had uh, issue three seventy-eight, so that would have been part three of Maximum Carnage coming out in June of ninety-three, and that was about the same time that issue five of Venom: uh, Lethal Protector would have come out. Yeah. Um, and Lethal Protector one came out in February ninety-three, and you had in February ninety-three you had um, Amazing Spider-Man three seventy-four. So it's just kind of an interesting overlap of time. Yeah, that is weird. But I guess it makes sense. Like again, it's between appearances, so you have him start a whole new life, and then he goes back to New York just to do Maximum Carnage. Like it's an yep. interesting choice. Yeah. Well, do you have anything you want to say about this finale here? It's. I mean, it, it, it's an ending. Yeah. Um, yep. Yep. It, it's an interesting way of again setting up the character to have stories of his own. Uh, now he has you know people of his own, so in future stories you can start to explore the people that he's protecting, um, you know the homeless of San Francisco. So you know it's giving him a reason to be, a reason, something to do. Um, it's not as bad as other books where you took reform villains and kind of try to give them the, the heroic spotlight. It, it, do, it does give him like a set uh, purpose. It gives him a supporting. Well, we haven't met any of them really yet, but it gives him a, a place where you can farm a supporting cast out of. So it's not a bad idea, and again, it pushes him away from New York. The only thing that's really tenuous is once again Spider-Man saying, "Oh, I guess it's like that deal we just made, and I guess I just have to believe that you know <laughs> he'll be all right, and I can't really move out to San Francisco and hunt him forever." And which again is just a weird disconnect because that doesn't feel very Spider-Man-ish. 
Um, but again, they have to do what they got to do to allow Venom to operate so that they can have additional stories. I also think it's in Spider-Man's character to see the or believe the good in people. And like he, he has done this with Dr. Octopus and people in the past where if they show a hint of being good, he'll he'll give them a little rope True. to see what happens. And uh, but he keeps tabs on him and he keeps tabs on Venom as well. So, now, just in, in terms of a historical context, just to mention it. So when this issue ends, and at the end it does say, like, the next series is Funeral Pyre. Yep. So it's coming up. So not only was it coming up, it was literally the next month. Yep. So it came out in August 93. So August 93, you have part 11 of Maximum Carnage and 12, 13, and 14. And then you also have this new miniseries starting. Um, and it's, you know, before it's by the time it's ended, you get three issues of it. Then he's showing up in Daredevil, which we've covered in our Daredevil epic collection of um, Fall from Grace. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. So it's right around this appearance. So just in t- again, trying to put things in, in uh, context of time, like he's going right from this being into Daredevil and Imperial Pyre. Uh, and then he's got like more miniseries and miniseries that start after that. Because, again, wow. it's an ongoing series of miniseries. But, yeah, it's interesting to kind of see that, you know, we probably forgot that there was that connection with Daredevil, but it's right around this period. It's just after this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and again, back in New York. Well, you know what? It's still fine. It's um, it's not Michelinie's best work, but it's typical of the 90s. It's still a fun ride. Uh, it's great just to have. I, I like classic 90s Venom. So this is definitely not the worst of the miniseries by a long shot. Of, of this. Oh, no. There's so. more or less a coherent story. Yeah. <laughs> so this is good. Is this one of the last times David Michelani actually gets to write Venom? Well, let's see. I guess he does it in Maximum Carnage, and then um... like does he does he do does he do Funeral Pyre? Sorry, I, I apologize for keeping this going. He doesn't do any of the other Venom miniseries that I'm aware of. Carl Potts does funer- Funeral. That's Pyre. right. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah. So I guess this is this is kind of one of the last times he'll ever write the character. Yeah, I guess so. Well, which is crazy. Like, the, you know, the, this is the you know one of the last times we'll ever see the creator of Venom actually writing a Venom story. Um, you know, and that's kind of kind of a big deal if you think about it. Like, he gets to kind of spin the character out into his own new world, and then that's kind of it. Let's him go. Let him go. <laughs> yeah, they grow up so fast, and they move out. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Wow, awesome. Okay. Adam, we'll catch you on another episode. I think we're talking about trying to do some Daredevil episodes soon to get Daredevil some more screen time on the Epic Marvel podcast. So, or some, air, some yeah. more air time, rather. Sorry. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we'll we'll work that out eventually, and we'll keep everybody posted. Um, if you haven't already, join our new Facebook group. Search for Epic Collections on Facebook and find our group because there's some uh, really fun conversation going on over there. It's a lot of fun. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a good time over there. Okay, take care, everybody, and we'll see you in the next episode.